Jeremiah 17. In my Bible reading, I'm following a Bible reading plan right now that, that it's, it's a little bit, it's a chronological, no, it's not even chronological. It's, it's some, candidly, it's a strange arrangement of going through the Bible. It's the first time I've used this particular plan. And it brought me through Jeremiah about, I don't know, two months ago, I guess. And as I'm reading through the book of Jeremiah, there were some things that I noticed. And when I got to chapter 17, I hit a head scratcher. That's not saying I didn't hit some before that, but this one really got me. And I never really thought of it as being a potential message until the Lord just kept bringing it to my mind, bringing it to my thinking. Jeremiah had the unpleasant but much needed duty of prophesying to the southern kingdom of Judah. Now you remember Israel after, after Solomon under Rehoboam, Israel splits. The northern, 12, northern 10 tribes go north. They call themselves Israel. They're based out of Samaria. The southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, based out of Jerusalem, become the kingdom of Judah. This, the northern kingdom had no good kings whatsoever. None. None. The southern kingdom had a handful. Guys like Josiah and Hezekiah, Uzziah, people like that. All right. But both of them had basically the same problems and the same issues. And about 100 years after Isaiah, you have Jeremiah. He was called to be a prophet somewhere between 14 and 20 years old. So he's young. He's young. And his ministry spans through five kings over the next 40 or so years. He was known as the lonely prophet for a couple of reasons. Number one, when you bring messages like Jeremiah does, you don't have many friends. (laughs) Okay. But number two, God told Jeremiah to never get married. Um. I've done, I pastored, the first five years I pastored in Alabama, I pastored as an unmarried man. I wouldn't wish that on anybody, man. That, I had to get a dog, you know. I'd come home to an empty house. I finally had to get a dog. And that dog didn't do anything to make my life worse, but still. Um, but he was also known as the weeping prophet. Now, some of that was because he was by nature a compassionate man, a man with some heart. But he also had to give a message that brought forth many tears. At one point, Jeremiah's prophecies were so specific and so right on the money, they accused him of being a spy. They accused him of being for the Babylonians. Now, the question that we ask ourselves this morning is, what do I learn from a prophet who lived 650 years ago? What do I glean from prophecies that condemned a long dismantled kingdom that's not going to reappear until Jesus comes back and sets it up himself. What do I take from this? Well, you know, the Old Testament is rich in lessons for Christians today. Yeah, we're no longer under the law, but these accounts were given for us as an example, a pattern from which we can learn. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that. Don't ignore the Old Testament. You may be a New Testament Christian, but there's a great deal to glean from the Old Testament. So we approach Jeremiah 17, and I love a clever title. I love a title that is gripping and that you just, you know, think of the great titles of yesteryear. R.G. Lee. What do we remember from R.G. Lee? Payday Someday. Man, what a great title. Jonathan Edwards, whose message was not that 
um, was not that excitable. He wasn't an excitable preacher, but man, everybody's heard of the title Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. So I work hard to bring a title that's like that. You ready for it? You might want to jot this down. Three lessons from Jeremiah. It's the best I can come up with, y'all. I'm ashamed to say I probably spent as much time trying to figure out a good title as I did working on the message. And that was hours. So, and finally, after hours of nothing, I said, all right, three lessons from Jeremiah is all I got. It's all I got. So, Father, would you help us today? Would you speak to our hearts? Would you teach us from your word? Holy Spirit, have your way. Move in every heart and bring us to where we need to be. And in all of this, may Jesus be lifted up. For it's in his name we ask these things. Amen. Three lessons from Jeremiah. The first lesson that we get is a lesson regarding our problem. I've said this before, so forgive me those that have heard this before, but for the benefit of our visitors, um, there's terms that are used that have been misused and abused and redefined and everything else, so let me give you some terms so we'll know where we all stand. Uh, first and foremost, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, okay? All right. Then, because I believe in the distinctives and convictions of Baptists, I identify as a Baptist, okay? Uh, Additionally, I believe in the fundamentals of the faith. I believe in those things that have to be true for salvation to work, and that, that by definition, makes me a fundamentalist. Now, some people use the term fundamentalist in wrong ways. They hear fundamentalist, and they think of Muslim terrorists flying into the side of buildings. That's, That's not at all what we're talking about here. But then we're independent. That means we're not part of a convention or an association. It doesn't mean we're at war with people that are. It just means we're independent. We answer to nobody but God and one another. Okay. So by definition, I'm an independent fundamental Baptist. Now be careful because some people have turned that into one conflagrated, one, one big word. I'm an independent fundamental Baptist. They just make it all one word. And usually when you hear them say it like that, it's not good. I'm an independent fundamental Baptist. Okay. All right. But because I'm one of them, because I'm part of that, that, that crowd, I have more freedom to be critical than somebody outside of those circles. It's like with my family. You're not allowed to make fun of my sister. But I'm allowed to make fun of my sister when she merits it. And so one of the things that fundamentalists, I think, over the years have maybe been not as great at is identifying our problems. Here's what we tend to do. We tend to focus on all kinds of fruit, but we never get around to dealing with the root. Oh, I'm not saying fruit doesn't need to be dealt with, but we got to get to the root if we want a lasting impact. We have a tendency to deal with symptoms, but not causes. If, if, uh, 
if, if, if Isaac over here, if I see something external about Isaac that I don't like, and what in the world could there be external to not like about Isaac? Except when he wears hokey stuff. Then, then yeah. All right. I could issue an edict in the Christian school, and I've considered it. No Virginia Tech stuff in school. None. Problem is, we'd have a riot on our hands because Hokey fans are out of their minds. I may could keep him from wearing the shirt, but I haven't changed his heart, have I? So here's what I do. I say, Isaac, come with me. We're going to UVA. I want you to meet Coach Bennett. I want you to meet Coach O'Connor. We'll skip Coach Elliott. He hadn't shown me anything yet. But we're going we're to meet the other coaches. And I start working on his heart. And before long, Isaac starts saying, wahoo wah. And his father leaves the church over it because, <laughs> you know. We're dealing with fruit, but not the root. Now, when you read through the book of Jeremiah, and we're not going to do so for time's sake, but when you read through the book of Jeremiah, here's some of the stuff you see. You see immorality. You see all the commandments being broken. You see intrigue and murder and there's even evidence of human sacrifice. I mean, we're talking really bad stuff. But if you look at Jeremiah and even Isaiah and some of the other prophets, you find out all of that is fruit. It comes down to one root problem with God's chosen people. You ready for it? idolatry it all comes down to the root of idolatry everything you see going on in israel funnels its way back to that single problem idolatry there's a lesson there for us regarding our problem sin no matter what sin you have in your life, oh, preacher, let me tell you about them. I've done this, and I've failed to do that, and i got this going on in my life. Every sin you can think of, ultimately, if you dig deep enough to the root, you know what you find? Idolatry. What do you mean? Idolatry is when we place something or someone in God's rightful place of preeminence. When I sin, I am placing myself, my desires, what this person thinks of me, what that's going to do in my life, whatever it is, I am taking it and putting it where only God should be. Idolatry. Our first priority, more than anything else, is to keep God in his rightful place in our hearts. How do I know? Well, Deuteronomy 6, you know the Shema? I could quote it for you in Hebrew, but I'm not, because that would be a bit much. It's the only Hebrew I know, by the way. The Shema, 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Okay, Andy, great. That's Old Testament. You got any New Testament? I do. Would you accept the testimony of Jesus Christ? Matthew chapter 22. Then one of them, these religious leaders, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him, and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Notice it does not say greatest. It says the great, the singular commandment. Which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. Now he goes on to say what's going to result from that. The second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. But what does Moses say is the primary objective? To love the Lord thy God. What does Jesus say is the primary objective? To love the Lord with all thine heart. If, If we have God in his place of preeminence, it takes care of everything else. And every failure that we have as a Christian stems back to God not having his rightful place of preeminence in our lives. Every one of them. Whatever your problem is, your problem is idolatry. As a pastor, let me tell you what can become my idol. Ministry. Did you know ministry can become more important to you than God? It is so easy for parents to make kids their idols. It is so easy for married couples to make their spouse their idols. It's so easy for young people that have some relationship, be it a friendship or something more romantic or whatever, that becomes their idol. Uh, you know, attaining some goal, some measure of, of, stel- of, of stealth, of wealth or status, which requires stealth sometimes. But, but whatever that may be, all of these things have the potential. Our root problems stop dealing with the fruits and get to the root problem. Idolatry. Jeremiah teaches a lesson about our problem. But then, Jeremiah teaches a lesson, and yes, we are getting to Scripture in a minute. Jeremiah teaches a lesson about the standard. Okay, I got a problem. What's the standard? If you have some kind of a medical issue and you go to a doctor, you assume that doctor or that physician's assistant or that nurse practitioner, whatever the case may be, you assume that medical professional is operating off of a legitimate and accepted standard, right? Now, I'll be candid with you. I am less and less trusting of modern medical standards given what they seem to be endorsing these days. You won't be specific? I can. If you're not willing to say that somebody's gender is determined by their physical and chromosomal makeup, I don't have much confidence in you as a doctor. Sorry, I don't. But if I go to the doctor and the doctor says, well, this is your problem, okay, and what's the standard you're using to diagnose that problem? Well, it's just a hunch. Um, okay, (laughs) 
Now, I realize sometimes because there's no apparent reason for it, sometimes you do have to trial and error things. I get that. But I'm talking about just the doctor didn't have a standard. You know? Well, Mr. Davis, I'll tell you. Everything that we're seeing about you, your irritability, your uh, swollen ankles, it, it seems to me you might be with child. Nope. <laughs> nope. You're using the wrong standard, bud. You know? Um, I want to know that they're using a standard that's legitimate. When you read through the book of Jeremiah, you know what you find out? Everything that he says, every problem that he diagnoses, every time he calls them out on anything, he uses the same standard. And it's not his opinion. It's not his background. It's not his tradition. Let's be honest, y'all. We live in Appalachia. Boy, we sure can make a lot of, lot of conclusions based on standards that are more cultural than biblical. Mm. I'm a southerner. My wife's a southerner. We're two different types of southerners. Appalachian southern is different than everybody I know. <laughs> I've, I've, it's taken me 12 years to really assimilate into this culture, but I'm learning. Some of y'all still look at me like a city boy. I'm not, kind of. <laughs> but you see, I'm from the Richmond area. And in the Richmond area, we are the aristocratic Southerners. We're the Southerners that talk like Foghorn Leghorn. We are the, uh, we're the Southerners that are genteel. And you got my wife from Georgia. Yeah. See? The Deep South. Down there in the deep south, they ain't got no garden hoses or water hoses. They got hose pipes. I pastored in Alabama for three years before I knew what a hose pipe was. They're the ones that look at you, and when they disagree with you, they say, you ain't done it. And everybody's a Braves fan. I don't know what we're going to do if the Orioles and the Braves meet in the World Series. We're going to have to watch it in different houses. culture can be a, a standard that we use, but it shouldn't be the standard. All through the book of Jeremiah, here's what you got. You've got Jeremiah giving the same message over and over again for 40 years. Other prophets offered alternative views. Other prophets um, made fun of Jeremiah. Different kings called him a fraud. Jeremiah was in prison. He was sentenced to die. Ultimately, he was kidnapped and carried away to Egypt. But in all of this, the message, the standard, never changed. We are, we are living in a time that is unlike any before it. And we are coming up in this nation that has changed fundamentally from the nation our previous generation had. There's some crazy stuff going on in this nation and across the world. I can remember when we would look at Europe and we'd be like, man, they've lost their minds over there. We've leapfrogged Europe. Now Europe's looking at us saying they've gone crazy. Yeah. And there is a 
just a great and heavy temptation to water down the message, to tweak it just a little bit, to try to reach this new mindset. No. The message must stay the same. I'm not saying be unkind. I'm not saying go out of your way to be you know, obnoxious. But the message must stay the same. That message is the word of God. We need an immutable standard. It begins with our God. Matthew, Malachi 3.6, he says, I am the Lord. I change not. Matthew 24, verse 35, Jesus said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Psalm 119, 89, Forever, O Lord, thy word is what? Settled in heaven. We are living in a culture that is fraught with problems that all go back to idolatry. And when we address these problems, we need to stop trying to figure out the new thing and just give people the only thing that will help them. And that's the word of God. The standard for everything. Now, you're in Jeremiah 17. I trust you've not closed your Bibles. All of that brings us to this thought. We got a problem, and it's all rooted in idolatry. The standard must ever be the Word of God. But then Jeremiah gives us a great lesson on how God then treats the problem. How does He treat the problem? We read verses 19 through 27. What does it talk about? The Sabbath. Now, when I read that in my reading, this is what jumped out at me. Everything I've read thus far in Jeremiah and all the problems they've got, all the bad things that are happening, and this is where God takes them? To the Sabbath? I can think of nine other commandments that hit harder than that. Why in the world, and by the way, I wasn't doing it in a disrespectful way, but when you read your Bible, ask questions. Lord, what do we need to learn here? What am I trying to see here? Seems to me somebody ought to holler out, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet. But instead, God takes them to the Sabbath. Why? Well, here's why. He mentions the Sabbath. Verse 21, take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. Neither carry forth a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, neither do you any work, but hallow ye the Sabbath Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. Verse 24, and it shall come to pass, if you diligently hearken unto me, saith the Lord, to bring in no burden through the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but do hallow the Sabbath day to do no work therein. Then shall there enter into the gates of this city kings and princes sitting upon the throne of David. What's he saying? If you'll honor the Sabbath like I commanded you to way back in Exodus 20, I'm going to bless you. You're going to see improvement. Why? 
The reason that's so hard to understand is I think we've forgotten the purpose of the Sabbath. The Sabbath by most Christians is largely ignored. We would agree that we should still be keeping the other nine, right? I mean, everybody's okay with us murdering? No, you know, we still, thou shalt not kill, that, that's, that's still there. Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not covet, honor, the, or, um, honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. We're fine with all of that, but we kind of just forget the Sabbath. And I think what's happened here is we fail to understand that the Sabbath went from being a precept to a principle. It's still a very active principle. Anybody in here that, that, that has, has worked any kind of work that requires exertion will tell you, you better rest at some point or you're going to break down. Right. Just will. I believe that every Christian ought to find a way to take one-seventh of their week and set it aside for rest and worship. Now, it's not Sunday. Sunday's not the Sabbath. It was Saturday in the Bible. Now, I work every Saturday and Sunday, so mine is usually Monday afternoon. But you find time to slip away and recharge, but, but that's not even the point of this message. People look at the Sabbath, and they think that the Sabbath was just one more way for God to keep his thumb on people, one more rule to give them. That was never the intention of the Sabbath. God always intended the Sabbath to be a blessing and not a curse. And Jesus backs this up. Listen to Mark chapter 2, verse 23. It came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. Now, let me demonstrate to you. My Bible class already knows this. Corn, in King James English, corn can mean any kind of kerneled, kerneled you know, um, grain. In this case, it was probably wheat or barley. Here's what they're doing. The Bible taught that the poor and the disciples were poor, that they could walk through the corners of somebody's field. They were to leave those corners to be gleaned from by the poor. And so when you walked through a field, it was completely acceptable, ethical, permissible, everything to walk through and glean. And here's what they did. You ready? They would run their hands over the top of this wheat. The kernels would come off in their hands and they throw them right in their mouth. That's the fullness of the exertion that they're doing. Wow. They must have been very tired. That's it. None of us in here who are reasonable-minded would think of that as work. That's no more work than having a bag of jelly beans and throwing jelly beans in your mouth. And if that's work, then some of us are well overworked. Okay. But what happens? Religious people. The Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? They're, they're reaping. They're working. Now, Jesus did not do this. What would I have done? Psh, get out of here. What does he say? Have you never read what David did when he had need? And wasn't hungered he and they that were with him. They went to the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priest, and gave also to them which were with him. Do you not understand the spirit of the law? 
They didn't. I read an article just the other day by somebody who evidently does not understand the spirit of the law. Here's what they did. They were intensely critical of Rahab when she lied to the Jericho authorities and said that the the spies were already gone. God could not have blessed her life. Stop it. What? You're telling me if somebody breaks in your house and says, where are your kids? You're not going to lie and tell them they're not there? That's not a lie. That's disinformation. That's what you do in times of trouble. That's somebody that doesn't understand the spirit. These were people that were looking for any old way to make sure that somebody was kept under their thumb. And so we're going to call this one this, and we're going to call that one that. And by the way, if we're not careful, we fundamentalists can get there too. Me and Aaron had a disagreement just over this afternoon. He wants us to wear ties. I don't. (laughs) We're wearing ties. (laughs) There's only two people in this world I lose fights to, him and my wife. (laughs) They don't understand the Sabbath's purpose. So Jesus clears it up for them. Here's what he does. He clears it up for him. Watch this. Now, Jesus is God, right? He's an authority on this, right? Listen to what he says. Jesus said unto them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Do you not understand? The Sabbath was never meant to be something to keep you down. It was meant to be for you. God made it to be gracious unto you. God made the Sabbath to do something positive for you. You say, Andy, what does that have to do with Jeremiah and all these sins and God points them to the Sabbath? And here it is. You ready? If we don't understand and appreciate what God has done for us, we will never be able to perform that which God expects of us. Long before, now this sounds crazy in the Old Testament, but long before the people in Israel, or in Judah more specifically, could understand what God expected of them, God had to point them to something that symbolized grace. People have been getting saved by grace all along the way. Nobody's ever been saved by works. Everybody's been saved by grace through faith. And so when he's dealing with these Judahites, what he's saying is this, long before I can get you to where you're doing what I want you to do, I need to remind you of something I've already done for you. You see, grace is as vital to our service as it was to our salvation. Grace doesn't get you saved and then go away. Oh, no. You still need it. And, and that brings us to the, to the so what. Okay, great, so what? Now, this is where you go ahead and close your Bibles and zip up and pack up and all of that. What do I take with this? What do I do with this, Andy? Here's what you do. What does God expect of you right now? There may be somebody in here today You need to be saved. 
What is God's expectation for somebody who needs to be saved? God commands all men everywhere to repent. He wants you to be saved. That's his will for your life right now is that you come to Jesus. You need to be saved. How do you do that? By being introduced to his grace. You need to learn about his rest before you can learn about his labor. Maybe you're saved, and you've got to get some things right in your life. You'll not do it apart from his grace. You can't work hard enough. You cannot, you cannot pull up your bootstraps high enough. You cannot make yourself do right. You cannot live the life that God expects of you as a Christian without his grace to do it. You can't. I've seen a lot of people over the years, myself included, get mighty frustrated because we can't measure up to a standard that usually we've done for ourselves, but we can't measure up to the standard that we think God's expected because we're trying to do it outside of grace. Yes, sir. You need grace. Oh, I'm not saying there's not a standard of holy living and doing right. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying you'll not get there except by grace. God's called you to something, some ministry, some task or whatever, and you can't seem to get, listen, as a pastor, I'm telling you, I go through this all the time. I told somebody just, just either today or yesterday, I said, you know what, I, I sit down with my Bible and I mean, I've got all these books surrounding me and Lord, I, I can't get a message together. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to preach. I can't put it together. And God's Holy Spirit reminds me, I didn't ask you to get anything together. I asked you to listen to me. And let me tell you what I got together. Grace. And there's so many of us that we have been working and laboring and coming up short and failing and everything else when it's time for you to be reminded in the midst of all of your other issues that ultimately come back to idolatry. In the midst of all of that, the unfailing, immutable standard tells us, sit down, be quiet, rest in my grace, and let me do the work in your life. Because I can't do it. Where are you at today? Man, I got, I got this sin in my life. Okay, understand it for what it is and get down to the root of it, which is idolatry. God does not have the place in your life that he's supposed to have. And then look to his immutable standard, the word of God, and you know what you find? He calls you back to grace. Amen. Give it all over to him and let him do in you what he wants to do. I need to be saved, Andy, then here's what you do. Your problem is still yet idolatry. You've put something ahead of him. It's time to follow the word. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, and call upon his grace. Be saved. Whatever's in your life, recognize the problem. Obey the standard. And get back to the treatment, the grace of God. Three lessons from Jeremiah. Let's stand together with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, please.